somebody. How many of you brought your Bibles? Let me see them. Let me see your Bibles. Hold them up. Good deal. The rest of you, shame on you. But, uh, you know, there's something about paper. Something about paper. That's our generation. We're going to be talking about something that's kind of done in about face. We're going to talk about goats. There he is. But it's not really that kind of a goat. See, the English language is very confusing. When we, when things are very good, we say, hey man, that's bad. Right? I mean, we, we just got this language. I can remember a World Series that a guy named Bill Buckner played first base for the Boston Red Sox. And in the World Series, the third out was a, a little dribbler down the first base line, and Bill blew it. And for over 30 years, he's been called a goat, kind of like wrong way Willie. He's the guy that ran a 100-yard touchdown in the wrong direction. He was a goat. But you see, that's not the way things are anymore. A goat now stands greatest all of all times. G-O-A-T, greatest of all times. Tom Brady's a goat. Uh, this guy's a goat. It seems like there's just a lot of goats out there. And so the language messes with our head. But I kind of can see the progression from our generation, when somebody blew it, they blew it. And that's what we looked at. Until now, where we are told by psychologists that we really need to get a grip on ourselves. And there's a lot of things written and talked about self-esteem. They seem to be worried about our self-esteem. Do we think uh, as much about ourselves than we ought to think. And that's kind of premiated in the world. Uh, and you see, that's just the flip-flop because the Bible says don't think more of yourself than you ought to. But you see, it's hard. It's hard to be humble, right? It's hard to be humble, right? All right. I mean, oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. To know me is to love me. I must be a heck of a man. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. That's our theme song, isn't it? You see, that was an issue when we look at this passage of Scripture. We're going to look at the times that Jesus... Actually, we started last week looking at the last year of Jesus' ministry. He's leaving Galilee, headed to Jerusalem. The Scriptures record he set his face like flint, which simply meant Jesus had finished the ministry in Galilee... He was now headed to Jerusalem for one reason, and that one reason was his death. And so he's kind of like on a, 
a one-year teaching fast track because he's got a number of disciples who have been following him. And then he has 12 hand-picked men. Even Judas was hand-picked. But of these 12, 11 would be the ones that he hands the baton to and says to them, I want you to build my church. I want you to build and gather my kingdom. He said that through what we call the Great Commission. And that is a commission that has been passed down to us right now today. We we are the ones that have picked up generation after generation the baton of building the church. In Mark 9, verse 30, I'm going to start out with these first verses. He said when he had left that place, that place was probably somewhere in Galilee, and he was passing through Galilee, Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were. Why? Uh, because crowds were attracted to him, uh, and he, he was wanting to spend time teaching his disciples to them. This is what he wanted to teach them. He said, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. Now, we all know that passage of Scripture, but I picked up what I think is an anomaly in this. You see, back in, in Mark eight thirty one through 38, Jesus first announced that to his disciples. And what happened at that time was that Peter literally attacked Jesus, probably grabbed a hold of him and said, look, you're not going to die. I mean, in these guys, they had given their life. They left their businesses to follow Jesus. And now the excuse me, the thought of a dead Messiah, (coughs) excuse me, terrified these guys. And so Peter was saying, no, no. Later on, when they come to get Jesus, uh, Peter would go headhunting, but he was such a lousy shot, the only thing he got was an ear. But Peter was going to oppose this. And Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. You don't have the mind of God. You have the mind of man. And you see, so many times, that's the case in our lives. Many times when we read scripture, we look at it through the eyes and the mind of man and not God. Because sometimes, like this particular time with Peter, it didn't make sense. Jesus came to earth as Messiah to deliver the people. They're looking for him to when he gets to Jerusalem to overthrow the Roman Empire and to put them and his, uh, all of his friends on the, on the throne of authority and literally take back this world. That was what they had in their mind. But that was the mind of man and not the mind of God. You know, I understand fully why Paul said, we can only be transformed through the renewal 
of my man, of our mind. Because as we think, that's who we are. As we think, that's what we do. And so when we read scripture, when we look at the word of God, when we hear the scriptures and hear preaching, we need to look and listen to that through the mind of God. And I'm going to tell you why. In Mark 9, 33 through 37, in this same passage, Jesus has just announced he's going to go to Jerusalem and die. Now, when they came to Capernaum, he was in the house. Whose house? Probably Peter's house. He asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? Now, that had to get their attention. That had to drive you wild. Sometimes my wife drives me crazy. She'll say something. And, buddy, I'm thinking sarcastic. I've got the answer. I'm just figuring out, am I man enough to say it? You know what I mean? I, I, I don't know. Maybe I will. But I got the answer. And then she'll read my mind. She'll tell me. And then I have to either agree with her and take the circumstances or lie. Oh, no, not me. Ah. This had to run the disciples crazy because Jesus always walked in front of his disciples. He led them everywhere. The disciples didn't lead Jesus. Jesus led the disciples. So he was always out there ahead of them. And they're back there talking and whispering, thinking we're all right. And they get in the house. Jesus said, what are you arguing about on the road? Go ahead. But they kept quiet (laughs) because on the way they had argued about who was the goat, who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Hold that. This is absolutely the opposite of what these guys saw every day out of political leaders and religious leaders. The Pharisees would lengthen the tassels on the bottom of their robes. They would attach bells. They would bring a a, a group, a band, a mariachi band with them when they went in the streets to pray and to give alms. The disciples had seen this type of leadership and this type of people ooing and awing over these great men. But Jesus said, you got to be last and you got to be the servant of all. <clears throat> Think about that. Then he took a little child. In this culture, a child, a young man, or any woman had absolutely no standing in that society. They were ignored. They were not listened to because they, they just didn't amount to anything. He took a child and he placed it among them. And then he took it in his arms and he said to them, whoever comes welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And he added this, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me 
God. Jesus said, unless you greet, unless you reach out, unless you humble yourself, because it's like this. We're, we're no different in our society today. You can go, let's just say to a ballpark, football, baseball, doesn't matter who it is. There are certain people who play on that team that are goats. They're the greatest. And everybody runs over there for their autograph. And here's somebody new just up and nobody wants to talk to them. Why? Because they want to be seen as having been in the presence of the greatest. Jesus was saying to them, if you're going to be a leader, you must be last and not first. He would teach later on, when you go to a banquet, don't go up to the highest table and sit down. Because the man who's hosting that may come up and say, hey, there's somebody better than you. He just come in. You go over there and get out of the way. And you will absolutely will be insulted. If you are to lead, you lead by not worrying about whether or not you are first. Now, you may think, okay, that's what a one-off. Matthew 20. Let's look at Matthew 20. Now, Jesus going up to Jerusalem. Remember, I told you he's making his journey. On the way, he took the 12 aside and said to them, We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and to be flogged and to be crucified. This is the third time that Jesus has said to his disciples, Privately, getting them prepared for his departure, trying to get into their head. Listen, guys, take this thing serious. I used to have a saying when I worked in public life. Uh, I would say to people who worked for me, you better learn this. I'm not always going to be here. And that was my constant byword. And I said it so much that when I would begin to say it to someone, you better, they would finish it for me. I think that's a part of this journey. I don't think the disciples grasped the fact that, oh, they knew he was Messiah, but they still had not come to the point of realizing that it was his way to become this Messiah. You see, Jesus was proving to themselves He was not going to command angels from heaven and take over the government and the religious. He was going to give himself. Here is God who spoke everything into creation. Here is a God who could call 10 million billion angels at his very bidding would humble himself before religious leaders before the Gentiles, and place himself in their hands, he would be killed. You see, that is the lessons in humility. And and they're blowing it. 
They're not seeing it. What are they talking about? Well, it didn't work when they were talking to Jesus. So what does every son do when he wants something? He brings mama in, right? So today. Then the mother. <laughs> See, I was looking in this scripture, and I maybe mama was traveling with him, taking care of her baby boys. I don't know. That's my assumption. Don't don't go putting that in. But the mother of the Zebedee's sons, James and John, came to Jesus, and she had her sons. Imagine this picture, okay? Kneeling down, ask him a favor. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. These guys had asked. There's a parallel scripture that talks about just James and John went to Jesus and asked. Here, they call out the big armory. They get mama. And they say, Jesus, we just want one to sit on one side and one on the other. All right. You don't know what you're asking of me, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup? I'm going to drink. Hold that. What is this cup? In the garden, when Jesus was praying, giant sweat of blood oozed from his skin as he cried out to God, if it is possible, remove this cup from me. What was the cup? The cup was the wrath of God against the creation of God. You see, we talk about a loving God, and he is a loving God. But you cannot understand that when you live your life in opposition to God, you are an enemy of God, And God's wrath is built up against you. Now, nobody wants to hear that. Let's just be bathed in his love. We'll do what we want to do, but he'll love us anyway. The biblical teaching is this, is that without the Messiah, there was no hope for mankind. They had disobeyed God in his face. They had gone against everything that God himself stood for. Against marriage. Against protection of children. Everything they opposed. And that was not one or two people. That was the world. And the wrath of God had built up. But you see, God knew. Already he had a plan because in loving his creation and hating the sin and the sinful lifestyle, Jesus knew there had to be a solution. And the only solution could be the perfect sacrifice that would not be a lamb without spot or blemish. It would be the blessed lamb of God. 
And that's why Jesus was going to Jerusalem to lay his life down, to shed his blood, to have the sins of the world, past, present, and future, poured out on him in the wrath of God so that he was so disfigured his own mother could not hardly recognize who he was. The ugliness of sin and the hatred of sin that God has. Do not think for a minute. Oh, I'd like to think that when I'm disobedient in God, he'll just pat me on the head. But you know, the scripture says if he loves me, he's going to put a foot somewhere. And he's going to prove how much he loves you. I don't like the discipline of God. I don't look forward to it. So there is a solution. The obedience of God. Let's go one more time. Let's go to Luke chapter 22. Here's the situation. This is the fourth. Actually, this is the fifth time. One other time it's recorded that Jesus uh, announced his death and the disciples were arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And he took a child and he set it in front of them. He didn't, he didn't talk about who was going to be the greatest. He just put this child and let it go. Here, he was instituting the Lord's Supper. Three and a half years is over. God knows how many miles these men had walked together. The things that these men had seen Jesus do. The, the teaching that he had taught them. Just, I mean, wow. That's the only thing you can say. And he is going to leave them this last example. This is my blood and this is my body. And later on, he would give that body and he would pour out that blood. And he's instigating it, all right? When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. That's a whole other teaching and lesson. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this, divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. I think there's a subtle message there. Guys, the kingdom of God is not going to come with me yet. I'm going to open the door so that there can be a kingdom of God. That instrument, that tool is going to be you. It's going to be those who follow you. But I'll not drink it again until that kingdom comes. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them. And he was saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for you. Guys, this is the blood that takes away the sins of the world. But the, hand, but the hand of him who is going to portray me is with me at this table.
talking about Judas, Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays them. This is the invitation that Jesus is giving to Judas to not do what he had already planned to do. Jesus didn't throw Judas away. He's saying, woe. And when Jesus says, woe, you better cover up to that man who betrays me. Okay, they begin to question among themselves which of them might be who did this. This is guilt. I mean, think about it. Guilt is a both wonderful thing and a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing because we live under guilt. God doesn't call us to live under guilt over stuff we've done that is in the past. It's over with and you can't change it if you want to. But because of guilt, whenever you're in a room and somebody says, let's just say the family setting, and mom said, who did this? You may be five of you in there, and only one of you know they did it, but the other four shake and tremble. Why? Because they knew, know, that they could have. They knew they were capable, and that's what's going through their mind right now. They're capable, all right? A dispute. <laughs> you got to love these guys. A dispute also rose among them. As to which would be considered the greatest. Think about this. This is saying I'm going to die. It's going to be tonight. And they're thinking about a succession. Who's going to take his place? Who's going to be considered the greatest? This has constantly been on their mind. I believe that Jesus not only was preparing them for his death, but he was preparing them to know that like the master Jesus, disciples will lead by serving. He was teaching them the description of character and, and of true faith. What is the character of true faith? It's in Matthew 5, 3. Oh, how blessed are the pure in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The definition of humility is this. It is the opposite of self-sufficiency. Pastors, teachers, ministry people burn themselves out because of the results that they're getting in their particular ministry. It ties them in a knot. It gets them so out of whack that we use the term burned up. But the question would Jesus would ask us if he was on the platform today, in whose strength are you ministering in? Whose strength are you living in? The generation that has been faithful, the generation who has faced obstacles, you're thinking about that nearing that finish line and you're worried, am I going to be okay? It's not through self-sufficiency. You see, 
Our life is bankrupt apart from God. I want you to tell me, apart from the Spirit of God in you, what can you offer God? What, what can you say in the old saying, I can do for you? You see, we should do the very best that we can. We should take ownership. We should work. But the understanding of this, when we go in the power of God, realizing that the result of everything that we do is not in our hands, how well we did it, how well we talked, and how well we led. It comes down to the fact That as we go, we use the ability, the talents, the giftedness of God in a specific area. God and only God will bring increase that lasts. So I say to you this morning, rest easy. Now that doesn't mean just sit down and do nothing. It means rest easy. Because again, when you read the scripture, when you're in Christ, you're in his Rest. Okay? I'm going to cut it. I got accused of being cored last week, so I'm going to cut it short. (laughs) I found a passage of Scripture years ago that helped a young preacher boy that really had visions of being the all-time greatest. I used to try to practice holding my Bible like Billy Graham because he looked so cool. Billy Graham looks like he could take a big Bible, put it in that hand, turn it upside down, and the Bible wouldn't fall. And he had that way of just going. I mean, he had it. But I figured if I watched him and added my greatness, I was going to be a great preacher. I did. I'm sorry. Maybe you've never thought of that. I have. Jesus led me to Luke 17. Let me read this to you. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he <clears throat> comes in from the field, come along now and sit down and eat? Think about it. Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. And he Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. See, We raised the generation that told us when we tell the kids to take out the trash and they take it out, we should bow down and thank them from the bottom of our heart that they would participate in family life. Now, some of you right now, I can hear you thinking, well, that's not very nice. No, you're you're thinking like a man and not like God. If you think when you stand before God and you come out with this whole scroll of everything that you've done for him, that he's going to say, oh, thank you. Thank you, thank you. 
I don't know what I would have done without you. The answer to a young preacher boy was, I've only done what my duty is. You see, you don't get accolades for obedience. You hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And you see, the competition that goes on in church world about who's going to be the best, who's going to walk nearest the power, who's going to know all the right names and be good to all the right people, is absolutely killing the witness of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ hung out with whoremongers, thieves, murderers, rapists. He hung out with children. He took time for a woman at the well who was struggling in her life. My question to you is in that ministry that you say you have, is it to the least of these? The very least of these is a person that has no knowledge of the saving power of Jesus Christ. That, friends, is our duty. And then we walk with them in the Lord. We teach, we baptize, we encourage. The disciples didn't seem to get what Jesus was talking about. I can't answer for them, but I can ask you, I can ask me, do you get it? Do you get what this is all about? Do you get why we have church on Tuesday? It's for people that don't come on the weekend. It's for people who may walk in these doors because it's a little smaller environment. It will be where God is speaking to someone and he sends them here. That's why we do what we do. Fathers, we come to you. I pray that you would burn in our hearts and lives what a servant is. It's actually a station and a duty of honor to serve the King of kings and Lord of lords. Right now, I pray that if there's someone that doesn't know you as Savior and Lord of their life, I pray that right now today would be the time they come to Jesus. Father, if there are people struggling, worrying about their status, serving in their own self-sufficiency, God, may this be the day that they turn to you, Lord. For you're our hope, you're our strength, you're our refuge, you're our redeemer, you are our all in all. Relieve us of this burden in Christ's name. Amen.